Hey Church of the Beloved, thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Today's message is brought to us by Senior Pastor Clint Shamblett. He is preaching from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Today we get back into John, and yes, last week Pastor Abe did an amazing job. By the way, I'm Pastor Clint. If I don't know you, I'm one of the pastors here as well. Pastor Abe did an amazing job last week of expressing to us the way in which we are to love good things, so choose to love wisely. Now, this week I get the unending joy of telling you that loving good things does in fact mean disdaining bad things. Today I get to try to convince you from scripture, try to expound to you the letter of John that says to love good things means you disdain bad things. Now right away our sensibilities are hit because we say disdain. No, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound loving, that doesn't sound Christian-like, that doesn't sound anything like Jesus. Oh, church, it sounds exactly like Jesus. It sounds exactly like John. So today, I'm, I'm letting you know well ahead of time, we are going to dive in headlong into understanding what it is that we as Christians are to disdain. Now, in the passage that was read for us, we hear antichrists, and we hear the, the hours upon us, and we go, oh, good, oh, fantastic. We get to talk about end times and, and antichrists and Satan and world leaders and monetary... No, <laughs> we don't. <laughs> Here's why. Two things I, I feel necessary to explain to you. One, um, I can't say, thus saith the Lord. If you grew up in church uh, at any amount of time, you know that in times, Jesus coming, his, his actual physical return to the earth is a very, 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 very powerful force within Christianity. As a matter of fact, many, many people have divided over this. Uh, when people ask me, Pastor, what do you think about the end times? I say this, Jesus is coming. When he does, it's all going to be best, period. And they go, but, but what about, if you, again, if you spend any time in church, what, what about when he comes, and what about the world, and what about conquering, and, and the Antichrist? And I say, I can't say more than Scripture does. And Scripture says, Jesus is coming. When he does, it's going to be great. It's going to be reconciled perfectly again. And I stop, because I can't say, thus saith the Lord definitively beyond that. And then secondly, it says antichrists, plural. They, plural, went out from us. Uh, This passage isn't actually talking about Satan. It's actually talking about, and this is where I get to my point, that loving something well, loving good things, has has a disdain factor to it. You disdain bad things. You disdain lies. Because those who went out from us, it says in John, 1 John, they were never part of us. So today, I don't have three points. I have one point. And the one point is this. Loving good things means that you hate bad things. And it's appropriate to have a godly sense of hate, not a sinful side of hate. And we hear hate and we go, oh, I can't hate anything. Jesus hated sin. We can hate sin. Now, his hating force of sin drove him to do what? Ah, drove him to remain nailed on a cross for you and I. So today, I want to express that to you. The passage that we get to says, hold on to good things and disdain bad things. And to illustrate this point, I want to talk about catfishing. 
Uh, catfishing is like, an, I know, it's weird. You're like, wow, we took a hard left somewhere. Uh, I know. Uh, catfishing, it seems to be a, a new phenomenon. I remember when catfishing was basically first onto the scene, a linebacker for a college university that was playing in a very, very big game was publicly announced to have a girlfriend, uh, and that girlfriend did not exist. It was somebody else who had pretended to be somebody and got his affection and love to them. And it turns out that this person was fraudulently, fraudulently brought into relationship. Catfishing is not new. It's actually ancient. It's not an old trick. It actually started in the garden. Satan, so I was going to talk about him, but we're going to talk about the serpent, in the garden, catfished Adam and Eve. He said to them, I am your God. Trust in my words, not his. He told you not to eat of the, of the tree. I'm telling you, that's silly. Of course he loves you. Of course he wants good things for you. Of course God would love you. Why would he stop you from doing things? They were catfished into believing a fraudulent lie because there was a half-truth. Do you notice the half-truth? God loves you. That's the half-truth. And then the lie came. So he would never stop you from doing things. And that was the sin upon all sins on which they were catfished, they were brought into. Now, today, there's another catfish. There's a half-truth. And heresy, in John, he concerns himself a great deal with heresy. He concerns himself a great deal with false teaching. One of the false teachings that we have is a half-truth that seeps into our hearts that says this, nobody cares what you're against, they only care what you're for. Have you heard this before? It's been a popularized thing, and actually I want to say that most of society believes this today. Most of society says, I don't care what you're against, I care what you're only for, and tell me what you're for, and then I'll believe in you, and then I'll follow you, then I'll listen to you. And actually what Christ does, what John wants to show us, is that's a catfish. It's a half-truth. You should be proclaiming and talking about what you're for. But when you're for something, you are against something else. You have to be. You must be. Now, if you're still having problems with this, if you're still thinking to yourself, I don't know, Pastor, you've got, you got a steep hill to climb to convince me of that. I, I understand. So I'm going to tell you, again, the end result. I have one point today. The one point is this. Loving good things mean you disdain bad things. And Christ disdained bad things. There's a uh, saying that was popularized in the early 1900s by a newspaper. Uh, and the newspaper said, among many other things, it was a quote that said, the newspaper's job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. The pastor's job a lot of times, my job at times, and this is where I get to today, is to comfort the afflicted. My prayer is that you hear God is against, disdains bad things, and you go, yes, and that comforts you. If you're afflicted, that should comfort you. If you're comfortable, that statement will afflict you. It will cut you, I promise you. It'll go against every sensibility you've ever had. It's everything you ever believe. It's the worldview in which we're in that says, Satan told us God loves us so he wouldn't prohibit you from things. And God says, I love you enough to prohibit you from some things. So you either believe the serpent or you believe God. You either get catfished into believing a deity that doesn't exist or God alone who loves you so much to be so, so inclusive of us that he excludes certain things. And maybe that's a popularized way of saying it. 
We want to be an inclusive community. A lot of people say all the time, and what I want to tell you is actually that's one of the lies. That's a catfish. I want to show you that today. Today, John tells us, don't believe in false things. Christ disdained bad things. And here's where I want to start. I want to give you an example of that. John says that anyone is a liar if they deny Christ and deny the Father. Now, what does that mean? And we can say to ourselves, well, yes, anybody's a liar that doesn't say God exists, and they don't promote him, and they don't say to him, yes, you are good, you are great, you are glorious, you are Savior. It actually is a little bit more nuanced than that. It's actually a little bit different. It says, John tells us, anybody who denies Christ, anybody who denies the Father is a liar, and that liar is not part of the kingdom. Now, I want to summarize this. I wish I could go into more detail, but what John wants to convey to us is be a disdain bad things. So I want to tell you today what those bad things are, how to disdain them. I wish I had more time to go into this. But let me just summarize it as denying Christ and denying God is cosmic plagiarism. That's one a term I want to coin today. I don't know if anybody's coined it, but if they have, sorry. If not, trademark. Um, give me all the royalties on that. Cosmic plagiarism. Now, cosmic plagiarism, I have to be a professor today. And, and when you get papers as professor, which, by the way, I just saw an, a, a report. AI is out there writing reports nowadays that nobody can catch plagiarism on. My gosh, I missed college by a good 15 years. Plagiarism is a big, big problem today. Plagiarism is taking credit for somebody else's work or misrepresenting, misquoting somebody. So I have to be a professor today and look at the world, look at our culture, look at maybe our church and say, hey, this thing that we believe is misquoting or misrepresenting, it's not giving due to God, it's giving due to mankind. And say, that's, that's plagiarism, we can't do that, or that's misquoting. Uh, it's much like perjury. The reason why plagiarism is such a bad, horrible thing is as much like perjury. If you're in front of a court and you're an eyewitness and you say, and you lie on the stand, you commit perjury, and you say, yes, that person over there shot at that person when they never did, your eyewitness account can send somebody to jail for life. It's based on a lie. And nobody can prove it because you, you, can, you can lie all day long. You have to go through the arduous process of trying to figure out, oh, that's perjury. They should go to jail. They should be the one convicted of a crime. Today, our perjury as a church about who Christ is can send people to an eternity of hell if we don't disdain bad things. And one of those things today is this cosmic plagiarism is False credit to anyone and other than Christ. False things attributed to, to us when the goodness, the good thing, the great thing is in Christ and God. Uh, when I was coming to faith, there was this wild conversation that was happening. It doesn't happen much more any, any longer. But there was this pressure within society to have cosmic plagiarism that said, the family is the most important institution on the planet. Family is key. Family is great. All you should care about is family. Family is where God is. We need to have roots. We need to have a foundation back in family. And they built, there's ministries built upon this. As a matter of fact, uh, ministries within that, inside the church blossomed and grew. And there's this whole entire just cornucopia opened up of family ministries and all different offshoots that said, yes, we need to, we need to make our, our community, our culture strong again. And the way in which we do that is by family. Now, doesn't it sound good to say family is the best institution in the world? That, that sounds lovely. That sounds good. And as a matter of fact, it is good. Family is a good thing. But it's a lie because it's a half-truth. Family is good, not the best thing. Family is great, not the best thing. 
As a matter of fact, Christ himself says this. He's asked at one point when he's hanging out with a bunch of disciples, a bunch of people. They say, hey, Christ, who's your family? Where's, where's your mom? Where's your dad? Where's your brother and your sister? And he looks around and he goes, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. This, these are my parents. And he's not pointing. He's not saying they have all shared DNA and shared last name. They don't share a surname. But he's saying, this is my community. He was being asked a question that said, where's the most important thing in your life? And he said, here. Today, I think we have a half-truth catfish that gets into our lives. And if I'm a professor grading papers and searching for plagiarism, one of the things we say is, family's the most important, and I have to circle that and say, you've misrepresented, you've misquoted Christ. You've given power to something that Christ himself didn't give power to. Now, there is this article written by Michelle Myers. She's on the TGC website, and she's a woman that's out in, in a career path, and she writes a blog and books. And Michelle Miller, or Meyer gets asked quite often, they ask her, she goes, hey, Michelle, what should I focus on more, my career or my family? My career or my family? Should I, should I supply for my family? Should I work hard and arduous and get money and make a paycheck so that my family can get things? Or should I focus on my family, which means that I take away from my career and I don't have advancement, I don't have enough career, and I don't have enough money? And she says this, neither. And she says, Hold on, Michelle, wait, wait, you're, you're a career, you're a mom, you're a, you're a family, and you're a career. And she says, yes, I am. And she says this in her article. She makes an incredible, incredible quote. She says, when I stopped focusing on career and on family, and I started seeking first the kingdom of God, I became a better mother, a better wife, and a better worker. She naturally started to love her children more. She naturally started to love her husband more. She naturally started to love her career more because she didn't make it God. She didn't make it an idol. She didn't say which one's more important. If you are in a position in life in which you're asking yourself, students are asking themselves, what's, my, what's the best career path? How do, I, how do I be a good career person, a good student, and a good faithful Christian? How do, I, how do I be a good mom or a good husband or a good father? Or you insert it. Because that's cosmic plagiarism to say these things that God gave us, God gave us family, God gave us work. God gave us education. God gave us the church. But if you say, what's more important, my career or my family, what you've done is you've misquoted Christ, who says, neither of those things. I'm more important than both of those things. See, it's a half-truth, isn't it? Who would ever fault somebody for saying, well, I'm, I'm doing the best choice of my family. I'm doing the best choice of my career. I'm you fill in the blank. What's the best choice for you right now? And what it's doing is it's pitting God against himself because he's saying, I never told you family was the most important. As a matter of fact, I try to tell you that this church is now my family. I've redefined family. I've done everything I can to show you that I am a brother. I am a father. I am a son. I am a mother. I am a sister. Don't pitch yourself of remaining back to the core values. As a matter of fact, that's the test I want you to ask. If my goal is to say you should disdain bad things, and we say to ourselves, hold on, pastor, hold on. You're about to, your next words out of your mouth is you're, you're telling me that I should disdain my family and you sh I should disdain my work. And what I'm telling you is I'm not saying that. Christ is saying that. And you're like, okay, I, I need some help here. I need some help understanding this. Let me try to unpack it. In scripture, Christ is quoted as saying, whoever doesn't hate his mother and father cannot be part of my kingdom. And we say, okay, that's... For some of us, you're like, great, that's easy. <laughs> My family, I can't stand them. Good, now I have permission. Hold on. Hold on. 
Honor your mother and father, respect your... That's, that's still a biblical man. What we must say is this. In comparison to our love of Christ, it must appear to other people that we don't think anything about our jobs. In comparison to our love of Christ, it should be evident to other people that I don't raise and fall. My identity is not chosen and made manifest based upon my role as a husband and a father, but rather my identity is formed first and foremost based upon my identity in Christ. And because of that, I should be a great husband. Because of that, I should be a great father. You can be a great father and a great husband and not love Christ. You cannot love Christ and be a crummy husband and father. Be a crummy... You can't, you can't suck at your job and love Christ. No matter what you're doing. Because ultimately what you're doing is you're doing your job for Christ, not for the paycheck. You're doing your job for the betterment of society, not for the status quo. You're doing your job because it's honoring to God, not honoring to self. Do you see? It's plagiarism to say, focus on other things. Which one's more important, my career or my family? Michelle Meyer says, I became a better worker. I became a better mom. I became a better wife when I started seeking first the kingdom of God. That's cosmic plagiarism redefined. It's a professor circling and say, don't pit these two against each other. Focus on Christ and you will be a better worker. You will be a better mom. You will be a better spouse. You will be a better church member. You will be a better pastor if you focus on that first. The next thing in, in trying to convince you in which that we need to look for cosmic plagiarism, then we need to circle it and say, Christ disdained bad things because he loved good things, is this. Cosmic plagiarism is false to say love is open and inclusive. Now, I am coming for one of the biggest idols of our culture. <laughs> Let me just say so right now. Let me just identify it. We have an idol as a culture, and the idol of this culture says inclusion and openness is lovely. And what I want to say is it's not at all. It is not loving to say I accept anybody and everybody. That's not loving. It's not loving to say, well, no, 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 Christ is open to anybody. Uh, read the Gospels. Do you know who Jesus was just savage towards? I mean, I'm not talking, sometimes as a pastor, you, you kind of get along saying a few short words, and it's people kind of pick up. You're like, oh, you don't care about this conversation at all, do you? I'm like, no, I, I really don't. <clears throat> Somebody will ask, <clears throat> um, I don't know, uh, uh, what lighting should we be ha have behind me? I'm like, lights. And they're like, oh, you don't care? I'm like, no. <laughs> That's up to you. you. You do the thing. When we talk about open, inclusive, when there are certain things in which Christ isn't really concerned about, on this one he's very concerned about because when he is savage towards Pharisees, when he speaks directly and he eviscerates them, he cuts them wide open. It's against the religious elites, the powerful that try to use religion for their own good. And Christ says, come at me, bro. Like, let's play. I'll tango with you. My goal right now is to try to convince you, try to show you, try to understand and unpack from the epistle of John that open and inclusive love is religion at its worst. It's Pharisaic. I'm going to try to show you that right now. In his book, this is incredible, Glenn Shriver has this book called The Air We Breathe. 
It's a fantastic book. Uh, I recommend you go read it. It's fant- it's, it's, it chronicles all the way in which Christianity has basically informed a lot of our culture, a lot of our standing, a lot of our values. And there's, there's a topic in which he covers, and it's based upon consent. He has a whole entire chapter called Consent. Now, a lot of us are saying, oh, geez, okay, pastor, you've came for the biggest idol, which is open inclusion, and now you're talking consent. I'm getting very nervous. I'm kind of getting uncomfortable. What I want to tell you is please press in, because I want to show you that actually consent is a Christ-made invention, not a man-made invention. Isaac, when he was up here talking about community groups, he said, we have four values, and these values are trying to show us, as Pastor Abe said, love good things. And then he said, our prones are often wandering. We, we don't see clearly. That's the point of mankind. The point of mankind and the point of Christ telling us, coming to us and saying, open inclusion isn't lovely. And we say, hold on a second. It's because we see but in part, he sees but in full. And actually, if you love somebody so much, you say no to other things. If you love somebody to the point of actual covenant, to the actual servitude, you will give up certain things. I I have given up looking like Chris Hemsworth. I, I was so close. I was on the edge. But having kids and having a wife and having a job, I just can't do it. I don't, I don't pay trainers all day long just to work on my body and make me look like Thor. I, I, I can't do it. I've given that dream up. That's gone. Wait, Pastor, search your dreams. Go for it. Open inclusion. Anything's possible. No, it's not. I'm telling you, it's not. I could fast for two weeks in a row. It wouldn't help anything. See, when we love good things, we must choose to disdain, or if you, if you prefer, maybe here's a way of saying it, you must, give, you must put away other aspects of your life. And to do so is loving, is it not? Uh, I enjoy cigars a great deal. It's, it's, it, uh, that wasn't on the bingo card. It probably was, actually. <laughs> I think about it. Dang it, it was. Oh, I've proven the point. <laughs> uh, I love cigars. If my wife came to me and said to me, I can't stand the smell of cigar, please don't smoke it at the house. I don't smoke it inside the house. I smoke it outside the house. And she said, if you love me, you would stop doing this. Do you know what my job as husband at that point would be? To say, okay. Or as to put as Wesley says in, Princess, or in, in, in The Princess Bride, as you wish. As you wish. See, what Christ does in which he is talking about to us and to the world, and when he came to Rome, and what Glenn Shrivener says in his book about the air we breathe is this consent. It's agreement. It's permission. It's loving somebody so much that you don't want to do anything bad against them. It's loving them so much that you choose not to do other things. And in his book on consent, it's actually incredibly wild that Christians created the concept of consent. Consent in relationships that ask permission to relate, ask permissions in which we are to be together in some sort of agreeable way. Uh, And the reason why is because Rome had a caste system. Uh, We have caste systems in the world today. As a matter of fact, I'd like to try to convince you, read history. For the majority of humanity, caste systems has been the way to go. Caste system has always been the way to go. It's never not been in the history of the world up until Christ an understand or understandable principle that people are created equal. That was not that was not present. And in Rome, Glenn talks about in his book on consent, 
He says that the highest of highest of highest people, the, the citizenship, the caste system, went Roman citizen. If you were a Roman citizen, you got more privileges than non-Roman citizens. Better yet, if you were a well-connected Roman citizen, so if you were rich, if you were wealthy, if you were influential, ah, great. Better yet, if you were a male, well-connected Roman citizen, you were a god amongst men. And it's really wild because in his book, he talks about, uh, there's this uh, little often uh, not understandable way that in which sexuality and identity in the Roman culture was understood. And what he says is, as if you dig into history, if you dig into Rome, if you dig into the culture, if you were a male, well-connected, rich Roman citizen, you, could, you didn't have to ask for consent from anybody that you saw. Anybody you saw were lower than you and automatically gave you consent for whatever you wanted. And this is Rome we're talking about. This is the Western civilization in which our constitution is written on. Said, well-connected, rich men have all the power. They can do whatever they want. As a matter of fact, he talks that in, in the world, he summarizes as this, in the Roman world, in the understanding of the caste system and ranking system and how people are treated, that basically there was, there's no distinction, there's no difference between the term for urinating and the term for sexual experience. There's none. As a matter of fact, there's 20 Latin ways to understand a female prostitute. There are zero Latin ways to understand in Rome a male prostitute. Why? Because it was just assumed if you were a well-connected, rich Roman man, the world was your oyster. You could do anything you want. In a very crass way, he said that those people that had power, that believed to themselves, I have no restriction. Love is open to me. I can do whatever I want. Viewed people more as urinals than they did anything else. See, when we say love and inclusive and open to anybody, no rules attached, we're actually saying the same exact thing that rich, well-connected Roman men said. I could do anything I want. I have no rules. It's my choice. They had the power and they redefined what that was. And then Christ comes along and says, nope. Because up until that point, people were saying, well, I, am, I, I, I was creating superior. I was creating better. I was created well above you. As a matter of fact, Aristotle himself said slaves were a natural part of the world order. Aristotle, one of the greatest thinkers of our time, said, yeah, slaves are totally normal, of course. That's natural position for, for lower status people to be in. And Christ comes and says, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Everybody is, and he introduced this concept to us of Imago Dei, born in the image of God, all men created equal. The thing that apparently we have self-evident understanding of was not self-evident to anybody before Christ. So when we say love is open and inclusive and we do whatever we want, that is exactly the mentality of a Roman, rich, well-connected well male that said, I can do whatever I want. I have no rules. I have no understanding. See, if you are a well-connected, this is Paul, by the way. Paul's a Roman citizen. He's connected to people. He's a male. And do you know what he did the entirety of his life as he's going to and fro on all these uh, missionary journeys and writing all these letters? He never once pulled rank, as it were. <laughs> he never once said, I'm a male Roman citizen that's well-connected. What are you talking about? Let me through. As a matter of fact, it was only when he was about to die that he said, okay, I'd like to talk to Caesar. <laughs> okay, now I'll pull rank. I don't want to die. <laughs> but up until that point, he was serving people. He was 
restricting himself. Do you see? Paul had every opportunity in the entire world to say, I'm rich, well-connected, I'm a Roman citizen, here's my card, here's my, I'm a card-carrying member, and he never did that up until the point at which he was going to die, and then he went to Rome, the place that he wanted to get to, and preached. See, when John says, Antichrist went out from us, what he's talking about is heresy, half-truth tellers, that said something like this. They said, don't believe in Paul, don't believe in John, don't believe in the epistles, don't believe in the word of God, believe in us, we know better than them. And love is open and inclusive to all, said the powerful. And we say, no, 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 pastor, you're misunderstanding. Open and inclusive is supposed to be more loving. It's supposed to bring more people into the church. Well, here's why that doesn't make sense and it doesn't square with what Christ said. Because do you know the second you say we're open and inclusive to anybody, anytime, anywhere, do you know what you have to be open and inclusive to? A KKK member. To somebody that says social justice isn't a thing. You must be open and receptive to non-restrictive ways in which a Roman, well-connected, rich man could do whatever he wanted. And I look at that and say, no. Now, I think we all could look, look at rich, well-connected Roman men and be like, yeah, they were idiots. Be like, yeah, okay, that's easy. That's an easy thing to say. But what if you had to say, what if you must say, what if you were convicted to say that the arrogant the proud, the Pharisees, thought that they could do whatever they wanted and they had no consequences. And Jesus was savage towards them. Do you know who Jesus wasn't savage towards? And this is, this is my point. You, you, you might say to me, okay, pastor, but to really, really, really understand that we need to have more people from uh, the, the disenfranchised, the hurting, the broken, they're not going to come into church if you're restrictive, if you, if you tell them what they can and can't do, that wasn't true of Christ. That wasn't true of the early church. As a matter of fact, do you know who came flooding in the doors of the early church? The disenfranchised, the weak, the broken, the second-rate citizen that wasn't rich or connected or male came flooding into the church because they looked at Christ and said, you're going to restrict the powerful, aren't you? You're going to impose limitations on people that think they could do whatever they want to do. And Christ said, yes, I am. See, the church is only open and inclusive in which it is restrictive over ourselves because church, can you please have the audacity to admit this? We don't know what's best. We never have. And guess what? We never will. We don't know what's best. And the more and more we see restriction, the more and more we see Christ disdaining bad things because he loves good things, the more and more welcome we'll be in his church. The more and more people will come flooding through the doors that are disenfranchised, that aren't powerful. The humble love the church. The arrogant do not. How do I know? Because it's history. Because it's Christ. Because Christ sits with a woman at the well and gently walks her through and at one point even says to her she says I'm I believe that we'll go worship on the mountain over here and you're wrong and Jesus says okay I'm Messiah I am the one in which all the water that you'll ever need is brought from and she goes oh tell me more and she goes oh this is really good I'm, I'm going to talk to other people about this and he says great go get your husband and she says I have no husband and he goes yeah I know you're an adulteress who's been divorced and she's broken 
Now, wait a second. Hold on, pastor. Be open. Be inclusive. Christ calls her to the mat after walking her through gently. And do you know what she does? She says, I want more of this. I want more of Christ, not less of Christ, because I know this man is for good things and against bad things. And if that means I have to restrict myself, then so be it, because he has fidelity to those good things. Uh, here's another way I'm going to try to convince you that Christ disdains bad things and is lovely for good things. In the early 1900s, there was this movement that came about. Uh, uh, there was a scientific revolution. There was a philosophical revolution. People all over the planet were essentially saying, we as people are doing good things. Look how great we are. Look at the advancements of the industrial revolution, of economy, of science. And all of a sudden, liberalism started to take root in the church. And all of a sudden, there was this, there was this rash of authors that came out with heresies upon heresies about Christ. Christ wasn't really man, or wasn't really man, wasn't really God, was just a floating spirit. And it was actually a heresy that was in the epistles of John as well. And we have this flood, this rash of intellectual enlightenment away from orthodoxy into heresy. Do you know what stopped that? Do you know what put a halt to it? And do you know what re removed people from that and brought them back to orthodoxy, brought them back to understanding maybe it's Christ alone by his faith alone? Do you know the one thing, the event that happened that took place? World War II. We showed up on the scene. We went into Germany, and all of a sudden, we looked at the advancement and progress of man. And do you know what we saw? Internment camps. And we said, holy geez. That's what we do? Yes, that's what we do. So the answer was this. Either mankind's heart is not as lovely as we think, or it's just those bad people over there. Do you know who believed those two things? Pharisees. I am good. I am glorious. I am good. Jesus meets a, a man and he says to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, give everything you have away and come and follow me. And he goes, can't do it. That's after he said, I keep all your commands. I'm so good. I'm so great. And Christ says, no, you're not. Let me show you. I'll push. I'll keep pushing into you because I want all of you or none of you. I want, to, I want to clean everything or I don't want to clean anything because if you're choosing what to clean, you'll choose only your pet projects. And there'll be internment camps in your future because your discriminatory heart that's not there yet, that's not percolated yet, that's not manifested yet, the seeds of your heart that say, hate the Jewish people, you're just waiting for the formula to bubble up and then it'll come erupting out of your heart. World War II stopped everybody and opened our eyes and said, oh my gosh, look what we've done. And all of a sudden, orthodoxy came flooding back into the church to say, God, you, you are good, I am not. You are good, I am not. It changed everything. And what happened after World War II, what happened and what should happen in the church. Church, can you hear me, please? Is it very easy to look at the church and look at all the abomination that's happened in it? Yes. Should we? Yes. Do you know what Christ did when he came to his church? He reformed it. He said, all you Pharisees, you need to change. You must change. And they were against him. They hated him. Uh, at one point, Jesus says, no, I know that Moses gave you, uh, your, your fathers before you, Moses, Abraham, all the way through all the covenants, you had ways in which you could divorce people, but I tell you, 
No, divorce is because you're hardened of heart. And the Pharisees said, whoa, 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 hold on a second here. Do you know why they said that? Because they said, I'm a religious male who has power, and you just took away my power. You just took away my ability to write off a divorce certificate to my wife because I didn't like how she spoke to me? Oh, Jesus, hold on a second. Hold on. You're, you're not playing by our rules. You're not playing by our culture. And Jesus said, I know I'm not. You all call me a liar because you think God didn't teach this. You want to cite scripture. Old Testament divorce certificate. And Christ says, that's there because to, to actually do so, to actually go through with it, you must admit you have a hardened heart. So if you want to admit you have a hardened heart and not receptive toward me, sure. But if you want to say you're receptive toward me, ah, you can't do it. Because in doing so, giving a woman a certificate of divorce made her destitute, made her with no economic, no cultural, no civil support whatsoever. She was a, she was a, a scapegoat. She was a black sheep. And Jesus says, not my people. You seek justice. You love mercy. And if you do those things, you must admit, church, would you have the audacity to admit that in your weakness, Christ wants to redeem that? So you say, well, pastor, does this mean divorced people are just out of the church? You're, you're being very, very exclusive. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, I, I had a, uh, an elder one time at a church. He was divorced. Uh, previous marriage, got divorced, reconciled back to the church, and he came to the church. He was up for eldership, and it says in Scripture, husband of one wife, and he said, uh, I have two wives. I'm an adulterer. Forgive me. Do you know what the church did? They forgave him. And we say, oh, so you're going against Scripture. No. No, it's not, because do you know who's qualified to be an elder? Zero people. Not a single human ever created is worthy of being called an elder. There's a standard to which you should aspire to, absolutely, and hold to it as fast and as dear as possible. But he had the audacity, he had the, the privilege of saying, forgive me. He was humble. He came open-handed. See, when you say to yourself, love's open to anybody, no, no problem, that's not loving. It's actually it's actually pretty egregiously religious. Imagine if you had a friend that said, I get to love how I want to love. You don't tell me how to love. And so <clears throat> all these aspects of you I don't like, please leave them at the door. I don't want to talk to you about them. I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't care about your foodie aspect. I, <laughs> please stop talking to me about that. Be like, well, that's, that's a main part. Of, I, I, I'm a chef. Ah, keep that to yourself. You're like, okay. Uh, Clint, I know you're a father, but could you not talk about your kids to me really quick? And I'm like, wow, that's really, really hateful. And you're like, well, I, I get to choose how to love. You don't get to choose how to love me. Do you see how abusive it is when we say love is open and accepting and you must love how I love? We're telling people how to do so. One night I was talking to my wife. I was actually planning for this sermon. And I said a joke to her <laughs> that I was going to say in the middle of the sermon. And she looked at me and she goes, you're not going to say that out loud, are you? And I said, oh, I was. She goes, yeah, uh, you won't have any credibility if you say that joke. And I said, man, savage. I've cut the joke from my sermon. 
Do you know why? Because my wife's inclusive love of me excludes me from being stupid. Church, I'm not, look, I wish she would make more decisions for me. I'd be far less stupid if that was the case. Church, Christ's inclusive love of you excludes you from being stupid. You don't get to make the rules of how to love him. He does. You don't get to make the rules of how he accepts you. He does. And you know what, church, please, I want you to see this. Thank God he does. Because you know what would happen? Do you know what happened if you and I defined how God accepted us? Would we ever be accepted by him? No, we would not. We would sit in our sin and our turmoil and our hate and our angst and our bad character and our bad hearts all day long. But praise God, he redeemed us. He saved us by his blood, by his son, by his life, by his death. You and I would have never created a savior who would die on a cross for us. Do you realize that? We never would have thought of it. Christ did, God did, and says, my love for you is not based upon your open, exclusive love of me. No, 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 no. God's love for you is based solely on the love of Christ and his death over you. As Christ says, narrow is the gate. Wide is the road to destruction. Narrow is the gate to Christ. Wide is the road to destruction. <coughs> or, as an old hymn says, come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Church, if you're waiting for yourself to be better or for Christ to accept you based upon your goodness, or you're demanding if Christ loves you a certain way because of who you are, can I tell you something? You'll never receive grace. My buddy who was an elder of the church that says, yeah, I'm an adulterer and I'm a divorcee and I'm a sinner lived the happiest life possible. Because it's out in the open. He didn't have to fraudulently make his way through anything. He said, I know, I'm a sinner. Praise God, I'm redeemed by him. Now, he should go on not sinning. That's true. <laughs> he shouldn't say, yeah, I'm a sinner, there's no rules, woo! No, that's a lie, that's another heresy. But if we are open and inclusive to all things, that's the large road to destruction. I don't want to have my way all the time. Because do you know why? When my wife told me to nix the joke, I would have I kept the joke in here. I would have said, no, it's my choice. It's who I am. I would have looked at her and been mad and disdainful and say, shame on you. Don't talk to me that way. Right? Praise God, I go, hmm, maybe I don't know what's best. Church, would you have the same attitude towards Christ? Hmm, maybe I don't know what's best. But maybe he does because his inclusive love excludes my sin and I can't keep on going on sinning because he loves me enough to say, there are certain parts that aren't welcome in my kingdom. Let me work on you. Let me remove them. Let me help you. Church, would you receive that from Christ? And would you stop thinking that we know best and rather admit, my heart would lead to World War II internment camps of Jewish people. And you say, no, 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 we're not like them. That's what the Pharisees believed. Pharisees believed when they saw oh, oh, anybody who was not powerful, not in charge, not in control, saying, thank God I'm not them. 
don't do that. That's how disdain starts. That's how hatred starts. If you were to say, I'm not like them, those people, ooh, that's cringeworthy right there. Don't say those people. We are them. That's what John tells us. Don't have cosmic plagiarism. Don't misquote God or take credit for him. Don't pit things against him that are good, not great. Church, please, I'm begging you. Don't tarry to Christ until you're better. Come a sinner broken by the fall in which all the grace in the world is given to you. All the love of God you're included with. All the forgiveness given to those who admit they need forgiven. If you're good and great on your own, you don't need forgiveness. And Christ says, okay, I got nothing for you. It's like a survivor, end of the, uh, the round. It's going to snuff out the candle. Like, I, got, I got nothing for you. Go home. No. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Come, ye sinner, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. On to Christ, kneeling before him, saying, forgive me. And he is good and faithful to forgive. That's what his death promises us. Not a hope, not a dream, but a guarantee. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit us online at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.